Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, the 49th chapter. If you uh, picked up a Bible out there, you're going to find it on page 679 in the Old Testament paging of our Bibles. I wanted to um, kind of set this up in a sense by... By talking about, if you've been doing the B90X, the read through the Bible in 90 days, I'm about a half a day, maybe a day behind right now, but but I found it to be an overwhelming gift to me. I've never, so I've said this to you a number of times, I've never read through the Bible really that uh, that quickly, the entire Bible in in 90 days and to stay on track with it. And it's easy to get distracted because I want to stop at a lot of places and kind of consider it. I want to review it. I want to do some research, but I have to keep going. Got to keep going. And by keeping going, I'm finding these, what we might call meta-themes or a meta-story that's really overwhelming to me. I mean, I, I know I've known it, but to, I've gotten it in a new way. And so when I come to the prophets, I come to realize that as we are, are introduced to the prophets through the prophet Isaiah, and I love Isaiah. I always have. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard as a Christian not to love Isaiah because there's so much of a foretelling of, of the coming of Christ, of the Messiah, um, but, I, but I've been moved by two things in, in Isaiah, in, in sort of that, that run-through reading. Uh, and the first is, is that Isaiah, uh, is, we find that it, Isaiah seems to have different contexts, perhaps a historical context for the, for the original prophet Isaiah, and then perhaps some other context as we go further on, maybe from the school of Isaiah. Uh, that's not what I really want to talk about. I, I want to simply say this, that, that I found two things that have struck me. The, the first is, <clears throat> Isaiah is overwhelmingly, the, the, the prophet Isaiah, the book Isaiah, is overwhelmingly concerned with trying to discern why it is that we've been beaten up, why it is that we're defeated. For example, in the 49th chapter now, it's obvious that we've already been uh, destroyed as a nation. Uh, we've been sent out in the Babylonian captivity. So, so we've really lost. The feeling is, is that we've lost everything, right? We've just, we've lost it all. We have we have no hope. I mean, why would we have hope? Well, we've been taken out. Our, 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 our capital, our, our, our nation has, has, for all intents and purposes, been destroyed. We've all been sent out. And so Isaiah wants to wrestle with why that happened. And, and we find a theme throughout Isaiah that is overwhelmingly important for us because it's, it's an understanding of the faith that if we don't get, we're really lost. It happened not simply because we fell away from an understanding of God, but we fell away from an understanding of God that led us to abuse each other. We weren't caring for each other. We, we, we weren't providing for the, the poor and the needy, for the widow and the orphan. And, 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 and what Isaiah wants to say is, is that's not necessarily or only a, a moral failure, but it's a theological failure. It's a, it's a failure to understand who God is and, and how God's love is for those who are, 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 are in need. And not only when we find in Isaiah, not only is it for our own people that we didn't provide, but it's also because we didn't provide for the needs of others outside our own, our own community. And so I'm, I'm overwhelmed by that over and over and over. Isaiah comes back to that. And then the second theme that, that is so meaningful to me is, is, to, is to consider again what the solution is. You see, if you're totally defeated, you've, you've lost all hope. Right? I mean, it seems like, how in the world could this ever be restored? How in the world could we ever get it? We've already been sent out. We're out in Babylon. Where does the hope come? And Isaiah wants to be very, very clear. The hope comes only in one way. And it comes in a way that we don't think makes sense. 
Now, for example, if you're a New York Jets fan, you need a great quarterback to round it out, right? Or maybe if you're, and there's a debate over whether Tebow's the right guy or not, but if you know how many teams are out there looking, maybe the Broncos were doing the same thing when they picked up Peyton uh, Manning, you know, the idea that you got to have the great quarterback, right? You got to have the great leader. You got to have the great, I mean, that's the one thing that'll round it all out, right? So, <clears throat> So what we would normally think is if I've been a defeated people and if, and if I'm just in total disarray and despair and I've been sent out, the one thing I need is a big, powerful guy. I need a big king. I need a big warrior. I need somebody that's going to come in and whoop up on those who whooped up on us. But that's exactly what God says we're not going to get. Instead, we're going to get something that makes absolutely no logical sense. We're already in servitude. We're already slaves. We're already in, in bondage, and we're going to get a servant. We're going to get a slave, in a sense. Perhaps even the word might be understood that way. We're going to get, we're going to get one who's going to come in weakness. And so we start to find from, from Isaiah in that 49th chapter, and then it specifically or, or intentionally as it goes forward, we find this suffering servant who's going to absorb our own sins, absorb our lives, and then is going to be the redemption for the world. And, and not only for us, but this suffering servant is going to be redemption for all the world. And so it runs so counter to what we would normally, what we would normally think. Let's listen for the word of our Lord, the 49th chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Listen again. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. And yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says... Who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, in the New Testament, in Paul's letter to the Romans, I mean, excuse me, in, in uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter, we're going to look at the first 12 verses and then jump down to verse 17. This is uh, Jesus, in a sense, kind of a test run. Um, he's got the 12, and now he's expanding it to 70, and he's sending them out, and they'll come back with a report. Listen again. After this, the Lord appointed... Seventy others, and sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I'm sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. 
Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you on that day it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. And then in verse 17 we see their return. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's the word of the Lord. Be to God. <clears throat> I want to stick with um, uh, the football theme for a minute. Um, it's easy because the season's far off, and uh, a number of you have been very disappointed in um, in the way your brackets have worked out in the NCAA tournament. So, um, I um, I think about uh, th- this idea that we have that w- that we we pull for a certain team, right? I mean, we we have a a team, and I'm a I'm a fan of this team. I I always wrestle with uh, the Indianapolis Colts uh, because I, when I was a kid, I was a Baltimore Colts fan, and Johnny Unitas, man, he was like, like Johnny Unitas, like the greatest guy ever football ever, ever. And and um and I'm still resentful that in the middle of the night, the owner of the Colts brought a bunch of moving vans and and literally moved the Colts in the middle of the night and. And so I took them to Indianapolis. And so should I pull for the Colts now that they're in Indianapolis? Should I not? Is it about the city? And somebody came up to me after the first service and said, well, it's just easy. Just become a Ravens fan. And, I, you know, and I, it's hard for me because being a fan of a team who's named after poetry <laughs> and not really even kind of like macabre poetry doesn't quite get it for me. So, I mean, so I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with, you know, what are these, what are these, uh, what are these things? I mean, why do we have these tribes? I mean, we do. We, have, we all have tribes. I mean, I know for a number of you, I, I, I suspect it's true for a number of you, but I know, for example, if, if a young man um, goes to Duke uh, University and perhaps even goes to Duke Seminary and perhaps even becomes a pastor, um, I know that it's really hard for that person perhaps to really pull for a different color of blue or shade of blue for the Tar Heels, right? And then you start to think about that. I mean, you know, why is that? I mean, what's, I mean in, the, in the real world, what's the difference between North Carolina and Duke? Very little. Right? <laughs> we just lost it. I mean, what's, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, that's the same thing, you know, in my, in my neck of the woods, it's, it's, it's the real Carolina, South Carolina, and Clemson. And, and, and it gets to where this, this rivalry, and the rivalry often becomes the strongest between the folks that have the most in common, right? I mean, so it's, it's, it's idea, what is that about? Well, it's, it's about being made to be loyal. I mean, there's something in our DNA as human beings is that we want to be loyal. We want to have a, a team. We want to have a, a cause. We want to have something to which we're loyal. My, my dad, for example, was an Old Spice man, right? I mean, the idea that my dad would have used anything else is just uh, Old Spice. Now, the fact that, that Old Spice is advertised by a Jamaican guy with no shirt on sitting on a horse now... I don't think my dad would really get that. I don't think he'd be bothered by it, but he, my dad was an old spice man, not because it was great advertising, 
but because he was an Old Spice man, right? I mean, he, that's just what you were. Same reason I, I still feel uncomfortable. True, This is true. I feel uncomfortable ever riding in a Ford, even riding in one, because my dad was a Chevrolet man. And I mean, it just built within me this kind of sense of, of loyalty. What's the difference between those two? And, but, but you see, we, we are made to be loyal. We, we want to be loyal Americans. We want to be loyal to our Christian faith. We want to be loyal to our particular traditions. We had a, a moderator of our denomination years ago, a ruling elder, a, a woman, wasn't a pastor. She was a ruling elder, and she's really a great leader. But her opening sentence, everywhere she spoke, the entire time she was a moderator, she would stand up and she'd say, I just want to say I'm sinfully proud of being a Presbyterian. And it was a way to sort of generate this, you know, this kind of notion of, wow, I got loyalty. I've got a, I got a team that I, that I can pull. And, and that's a good thing. <clears throat> it's great to be loyal. It's great to have a team. You see, when we're in a tribe, we have a language. We have a common language that we share. We have a, a, a common understanding. We have a common history. And, and that gives us a grounding, and it gives us a sense of peace. And it's a, it's a very meaningful thing. It's a very important thing. You see, to be on a team means that you can move the ball down the court. It means that, that you, can, you can get something accomplished when you're in a team. And, and, and you have to form as a tribe. I mean, there's no question about that. But as all good things often have a downside, there's a downside to tribes as well, isn't there? I mean, think about that for a moment. Let's, let's look at it in the international perspective. I don't know if you've been keeping up much with the international news, but um, there was a fatwa that came out in, um, in Saudi Arabia a week or so ago um, by the, the Grand Mufti Sheikh Abdulaziz. And a fatwa is a, he's a Sunni Muslim leader, one of the primary, one of the premier theologians in the Sunni tradition. And, and a fatwa is when you, uh, when you make a, um, a legal, um, a legal theological statement that is to be followed in essence, right? And the fatwa was that all churches in the Gulf nations should be destroyed. He based it on um, the understanding of some of the last words of the prophet Muhammad, supposedly on his deathbed. And, and um, so all, all churches in the Gulf region should be destroyed. Now, it's kind of interesting when you think about it. If you know much about the Gulf regions, it's not a big issue in Saudi Arabia anyway. Because in Saudi Arabia, you can't have a church, right? There are three and a half million Christians that live in those Gulf nations. Uh, most of them foreigners, uh, folks that come in and do work and, and sometimes servants, laborers, all, all those kinds of but, but in Saudi Arabia, you can't. So, so if you're a Christian, even as a, even as a foreigner, as a Christian, if you worship, you have to worship in secrecy in your own home. Not a big deal within Saudi Arabia anyway. But the other nations, I think the question came from someone in Kuwait, actually. Now, 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 now that's the danger of a tribe, because sometimes a tribe can start to, to be identified not just by who's in us, but who's against us, right? Who's on the outside. Now... <clears throat> Let's be honest about this and think about our own tribe and our own culture and how we respond to that. Um, we don't say much. We don't say much for a couple of reasons. Let's just be honest. We don't, one of the reasons we don't say much is because we're afraid. We don't want to stir up any more terrorism. We don't want to stir up any more unrest. We don't want to stir up any more stuff. We don't want to talk about that. And the other is, is that perhaps we even start to understand that, that the, real, the real thing is just about how we, how we allow all this to... to we just get along, but we, but we don't really need to... We want to avoid the conversation of faith and religion in, in, in all, almost all aspects of our life as best we can. Well, let's move to one that's a little bit less radical, perhaps. Uh, the nation of Morocco. 
Um, our oldest son, Cheryl and I were thinking about this the other day. It's been almost a year and a half since we've seen our oldest son, Ross. He's in the Peace Corps in Morocco. And so we booked, a, booked flights to go for a short little visit at the end of May. And, um, and I think about Morocco. It's a nation where we, we give a lot of aid. We, we're involved as, as a nation. We see it as a moderate, um, as, as a moderate Muslim nation. Um, and, and, and we believe, in, in essence, that, that they believe in a sense of freedom of religion. If you're a Christian, you're not persecuted in being a Christian. You can worship and you can, you know, you can, you, you can be a Christian. But you can't make anyone else a Christian. Or you can't convert to Christianity, even, even at the, potentially at the risk of, of your life. And, and that seems to be... So, think about that for a bit. Let's bring it even a little bit more close to home. Um, Friday, Saturday a week ago, we started in First Hall, we started a, a new worship service. And I'm partnering with a, an urban church. Um, and uh, we're, they're going to worship with us uh, once a month. Uh, they're going to, uh, and hopefully it'll grow, and they'll uh, have 60, 70 folks here. They, hopefully it'll grow uh, and, and happen more often, and, and it's a really exciting thing. Now, why didn't you come? Because we didn't invite you. We didn't tell you about it. And the reason we didn't tell you about it is we didn't want you to come. Because we knew that if we were going to help form or be involved in partnering with an urban context church, and we all know what urban is, the code word for urban, right? Okay, so we, we didn't want you to come because we didn't want you to, to water it or, or we didn't, we wanted, we, because we know because we know that, that if we're going to work with the urban folks, we need urban folks working with the urban folks because that's the tribe. Now, the really exciting thing about that is we have a plan. We want that not to be the case long-term and all. But you see, but you see tribes really do control so much more than we, than we want. And so let's bring it even a little bit more close to home. Um, we do a lot of inner-city ministry. We do a lot of urban ministry in our congregation. We don't see many urban folks that we, to whom we minister. We don't see many of them in our worship. Why is that? Because we, we feel, and we say this, I mean, they wouldn't feel comfortable here, right? Isn't that what we say? They wouldn't feel comfortable. What's that mean? It means we're a tribe. It means we'd love to have anybody and everybody as long as they feel comfortable with the way we do it. But it's our tribal way. You see... Here, here's the thing. This whole notion is, is that, that we have to start understanding what our tribe is as opposed to what our faith is. Now, let's contrast all of that with the Bible. When I look at the Bible, I open up the Bible and I find it so meaningful that at the heart of the faith is creation. At the heart, in the beginning of the Bible, God created the world. You see, our God is a creator God. Our God's not a tribal God. Our God's not a God who said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to only make one people, and the world's created in some other way, and these are my folks. God, our God is the God of the universe. Our God created everyone. Our God created every single person. The seven billion people on the face of the earth, our God created every single one of those. <clears throat> our God's a creator God who is the God of all. And when we get to Isaiah 49, as we read it today, that God says, when, you, when salvation truly comes, when salvation truly comes, it's not going to come just to Israel. It's not going to come just to our people because it's too little a thing. It's too little a thing because my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. And we see this theme start to 
present itself in the prophets, and then it carries forward. When we get to the New Testament, we look at the very end of the New Test uh, of the Gospel of Matthew, the very last words of the, the Gospel of Matthew, or Jesus's words, who says, "Go into all the nations, right? Teach, baptize, do go to all the nations." And, and when we get to to Luke ten, our passage today, Jesus sent out seventy. Now the symbolism is overwhelmingly significant. Seventy is the number of nations. It's understood that there were seventy nations. <clears throat> In Scripture, and so <clears throat> when Jesus appoints seventy, he's very symbolic. It's very symbolic in saying that that we're to go to all the nations. We are to be a people who are who bring the, the good news to all the nations. And and when we get to Acts, <clears throat> I always find it wonderful that the very first ordained people, really. I mean, you know, the disciples are called and all. I'm not sure they're really ordained, but the first ordained people, <clears throat> right, are not the deacon, not the elders, but they're the deacons. And in the sixth chapter of the, of the book of Acts, it's so interesting to me that the very first ordained people, every single one of them has a Greek name, right? I mean, every single one of them has a Greek name. And so when we get to the apostle Paul, we see that even more fully laid out when Paul says to the Galatians, in Christ there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, Greek nor Jew. You see, for us, it's very clear that we don't exist as a people for the benefit of the world, but as ambassadors of the one family of God, <clears throat> Now, let's be really clear what that means. We don't exist <clears throat> for the benefit, as a people, for the benefit of the world. But we exist as ambassadors of the one true family of God. It's not about us just doing our Christian thing amongst us Christians and helping others. It's about us welcoming everyone into the one family of the Creator God. <clears throat> into the one family <clears throat> of God. And so when you look at Jesus, you start to realize that there is this huge countercultural initiative. You see, for Jesus, it has to be countercultural because our faith has to take us to other cultures. If it doesn't, it's not the faith of Christ. It's not about me and my people. It is about God's world and God's creation and all people. Now, now, this is why it's so important, not simply because it's a moral call for us to go or, or, a, or a, a mandate or an edict for us to go and to share the good news, to, to see that there are five billion people who are missing on the team. Five billion people on the face of this earth who, are, who haven't heard, <clears throat> understood the good news of, of grace and forgiveness and salvation and hope and promise. The thing that's a foundation of all that we believe. But you see, we... We go not simply because we're called to go, but you see, if we don't take our faith to other cultures, we'll always be held captive by our own culture and our God will increasingly get small. You see, if we don't put ourselves in the context of other cultures, we'll confuse our culture, even our religious culture, our worship environment, our own ways of thinking about things. We'll confuse that with the true gospel. And increasingly, our God will get smaller and smaller and smaller. Are we together in this? I mean, this is, the, this is something that is so important for us to realize. Now, here's the danger of mercy ministries. Now, here I'm going. I'm going to beat myself up, right? Because if you know me, you know I'm all about mercy ministries. I mean, however you want to define it, I'm about helping people. I mean, that's the, I mean it's one of the things that, that I feel like Christ has just instilled within me that that no one should go without that we should be out there in the world and helping and caring and providing it. And some of the things that we do are just amazing. I mean, think about a congregation that opens and operates an orphanage, a children's home 
in a foreign land. Now think about the 4,000 HIV positive patients that we have in Kenya and the that's being provided, the mercy ministries that go on. Now think about living waters and the water installations for pure water around the world in which we've been involved. Think about the ministries that we do in Nicaragua. Think about the ministries that we will be doing in, in, in Mexico and in, and in our own nation. And all this kind of mercy ministry that's so, so very important to us. But, but let me tell you, here's the danger of mercy ministries. Is that it's so very easy to be condescending. Because I have something I'm going to give you. You're poor, you need money, I'll help you. You got dirty water, I'll help you get clean water. I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you. And what does that do? That puts me up over you. And here's the risk is that it starts to it starts to make my tribe a tribe just of prosperity. And so if we go to Africa and this happens so very often, I mean, let's be honest about this. I mean, we go to Africa and so many of the Africans, we go to Nicaragua, so many of the Nicaraguans, we go to Mexico, we go we, we go into the inner cities to park places, other places. And so many people look at it and say, yeah, you're doing great stuff for us. It's wonderful. It's great because you got all that money. And you got all this ability and all this, and, and you're giving us just a tiny little portion. I mean, we get that, but we're grateful for it and we love it. And, and, and you're doing all of that for us. And, and so what does that do? I mean, ultimately, that not only hurts us, but it hurts them because ultimately they start to look at it and say, well, what I really need to be doing is not thinking about the heart that's behind this and, and what's drawing these folks to do this, but I just need to be praying that God gives me that money. And so then it starts to become about prosperity and, and, and where in the world has money ever saved anyone? And you see, this is the danger that we start to have is that we start to be condescending then. And, and so I bring solutions, I bring fixes, and I, 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 do, I do all these things to help people and, and look how important I am and look how much I help. And, and all this plays out in our life. So, so what's, the, what's the answer? Well, here it is. The first is we have to admit our tribalism. We have to admit that we're in a tribe. We might even want to put it this way. We have to admit our racism. I mean, isn't that something that hopefully good for our nation will come out of the discussion of a child, a youth murdered in Florida? And isn't that hopefully some good that comes out of great pain and suffering? But we have to admit our tribalism. And I have to admit that I'm in a tribe. I have to admit that I'm in a tribe that's called America. I have to admit I'm in a tribe called Christian. I'm in a tribe called Presbyterian. I'm in a tribe... And I have to admit that I have to admit that I'm in a, a tribe called middle, upper middle class. I have to admit that I have to admit that I'm in a tribe. I have to admit that that in some way that because if I don't if I don't recognize that, I'll always confuse the gospel. So, first of all, I just have to admit it. And here's the second is if I'm going to be in relationship with someone else and I'm called to be in relationship with someone else of another culture. Here's what I have to do. I have to listen to another story. I got to listen it's one of the great advantages of being an introvert. Um, I, I really mean that. I mean, we get beat up a lot as being introverts because there's a lot we don't do right. But one of the great advantages of being an introvert, I know it sounds bizarre, I don't need to talk. I mean, I, I, I actually like not to when I'm in relationship with someone. And, and I've come to realize that, that listening is, is really the key. And not listening in the sense that, okay, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to have a I'm going to I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to get an entry. So I'm going to I'm going to ask it in a way that you're going to give me something that I really know. OK, I got my chance. Oh, I can jump in <clears throat> or, or I'm, I'm talking to someone who's not a believer. They don't know Christ. They've never even heard of him, whatever it is. And I'm and I want to <clears throat> I, I, I want to say, OK, I'll, I'll get the conversation going. Then as soon as I get the chance, I'm going to jump in. Jesus. Right. I mean, it's just <laughs> Jesus or, 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 or me. What Jesus. And, and so I got to listen. And I want to go back to the Bible in the book of Job. And I want to remember that Job did have good friends for one week. Right? 
I mean, those friends came to him and the Bible says for seven days and seven nights, they didn't open their mouths and they were great friends. It's when they started talking that they became less, far less than great. We need to listen to another story and we need to truly listen. Um, This is one thing I can tell you about my experience with Muslims. Um, And I really believe this, that um, my experience in my conversation with Muslims is that um, generally, Muslims have an understanding of the trust of God, to be able to trust in God in ways that we as Christians could really learn. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't recognize huge distinctions. It doesn't mean that I, that I don't. I mean, Christ is my Savior. He's my Lord and Savior. He's everything. Uh, don't, don't, don't confuse that. But, but even in that, I think I can learn something for myself if I truly sit down and listen. And we need to listen for another story. To truly be in contact long enough and, and deeply enough to truly listen to their story. Um, Friday night, we had a, a men's gathering here in First Hall. And it was really well done. It was great. Uh, Jim Gates did most of the teaching. That was great. And we had some responses from folks. And um, it was wonderful. And one of the things that happened that was so interesting to me was um, a good friend of mine in, in urban ministry, a guy named Rob Goodrum. Uh, Rob's been a friend of mine for... Most of the time I've been here in Norfolk, comes to shoulder to shoulder often. And um, Rob, uh, Rob contacted uh, the men's ministry folks and said, I've got some, he's doing inner city urban ministry. And he said, I've got some young men I'd like to bring to the men's banquet if that'd be okay. And of course they worked it out. And, and so Rob came with, um, I don't know, 12, 15 um, young urban men. We know what that means. African-American kids uh, from Maury, Granby, Booker T, Lake Taylor, and a couple from TCC. Now, here's what was so cool about it is that, you know, you could, you could play it two ways. Like, okay, well, these kids got to feel awkward. They were here with a bunch of old guys other than Gates and Matt Wicks, a few others. But, I mean, a lot of old guys anyway, so let's let them hang together. But they took those kids and divided them in pairs and put them at tables. Two of those kids at almost all of the tables. Wow. Now, here's what was so amazing about it is that that night... It was a night of conversation. It really was a, a presentation that then we talked about at the table. Who's someone that's mentored you in your life? Where, where are the real friends in your life? Where, and what an amazing privilege it was, not for them, but for us to be able to be with these young men and to perhaps hear and to have them hear us be at a place where we're simply sharing our stories. I find it when I'm in the woods, in, in the forest in Africa with the tribe that's adopted me. I'm an elder in an African tribe and when I go with them, I don't understand a single word they say. It's a language I don't, I don't understand. And, and I'm with the old men, many of them in their 90s, and I sit in the inner circle. They think my white hair, they think I'm that old, and they put me in there. And, and I go and I go and I go always. And, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. I've come to realize that just sitting with them for hours in the forest, uh, day after day often, um, we forget that we don't share the same mother tongue. Because the Father's language of just being together. So we have to be able to listen to someone's story. And then when our time comes, and this is the key to the whole thing, when our time comes to speak, we have to learn from Isaiah that we always speak from our weakness. We always speak from our vulnerability. I am sick and tired 
of Christians going about, God blessed me, God blessed me, God blessed me, God blessed me, God blessed me. Look at all that God's given me. Look at all that he's done. I honor him, I glory him because of all he's done. What about those places when you felt that it was so dark you didn't know the sun would ever shine again? What about those places where you were oppressed? What about those places when it looked as if your own identity as a people or perhaps your own identity would never return? Those places where you've been in Babylon. Where was God in that? That's the place that the world needs to hear about. They don't need to hear about the blessings that come primarily by monetary success. But you see, we as the people of God have this amazing privilege to come from our weakness. Because that's who Jesus Christ is. He comes as the suffering servant. And the one thing I'm learning in my life is that I should never fear failure because failure in my life to this point has always led me closer to Christ. Because without Christ, I'm lost. People often say, how do you have that introductory conversation about about life? And how do you have that introductory kind of, how do you get into the conversation of faith? I think it's easy. You just ask someone their story and they start talking and they love, they love being listened to and all. And then somewhere along the way, they'll say, what about you? How did you get to do this? How, how have you accomplished this? How this? And I, and I always say <laughs> it was Jesus. I mean, I am so much a sinner. I'm in so much trouble. I'm in so much. It's only by Christ. And What does that mean? And then you start the conversation. You see, without Christ, we're lost. And the truth is, the weaker you are, the stronger your witness. Remember that. The weaker you are, the stronger your witness. I have a dear friend who's been struggling with uh, a significant depression for a good while now. And um, she's in the kind of profession that she felt like if she was transparent about that, if she let people know about it, that um, she would, um, she might lose her, her job or people wouldn't respect her. They wouldn't come to her. She's in one of those kind of professions where it kind of, you sort of have to seem like you got it all together or you think you do. And, and so she hit it. And if you've ever been in those kinds of seasons of life, if you've struggled with depression, like I have um, for a lot of my life, um, you learn how to fake it for a while. The right smiles and the right, you know, you just kind of. But time came when you couldn't fake it anymore. It was pretty obvious. And so she finally decided she'd be vulnerable and she'd share with a group of people what she was going through. Almost that very day, healing began slowly to enter into her life. Almost that very day, the opportunity for new relationships, for a new respect, for a new appreciation, for a new value entered into her life. And what a glorious and beautiful thing to see these relationships starts to grow and people starting to contact and people starting to want have the privilege of being able to offer help for someone who's helped them for so much and to be able to offer prayers and at the same time people to be able to come and say, oh, you're one of me. You're one of those. We're one of the vulnerable. We're one of the... You see, here's the thing. Vulnerability is the key. The courage to be imperfect is the birthplace of creativity. The courage to be imperfect is the birthplace of of the gift of the Spirit in this world. 
And it's what we have to offer that no other religion does. A religion that's based on law can never be imperfect. A religion that's based on on law is only about law. It's only about following it. Ultimately, it's only about being a moral person. But what about those of us in this world who know that as much as we try, there's still something else in there? What is it for us? It's about a savior. It's about a hope. It's about a promise. And the thing that we know and that we recognize is that the weaker we are, the stronger our witness. I'll never forget. Not too many years ago, I I was at a, a deep, dark place. And I couldn't sleep and in a cycle of not being able to sleep and all that comes with that. And I, I wandered around the house one night and I just wandered and and I, I found myself just kind of wandering outside and I was out on the deck in the backyard and and I looked up and the sky was just filled with stars and and I thought, you know, I can't even appreciate the beauty. And then all of a sudden, God simply said to me through his word, look at the stars. Can you count them? We have a witness to five billion people on the face of this earth who don't know that there's a glory of God that can offer forgiveness and grace and hope and promise. We're the people that are the hands and the feet, the body of Christ. And so my tribe, I haven't decided about the cults yet, but I know my real tribe. And I'm never going to weigh in between North Carolina and Duke. But my tribe is a group of sinners and posers. And losers. You. And me. Who without the grace of Christ. Would be lost. But with him. All things. Are possible. And I want the world to know it. I want the witness of my life, I want the witness of our lives to be a witness that shares that and loves and offers. And and the only way that's going to happen, my friend, is to get outside our culture. The only way it's going to happen is for us to step out, enter into a conversation, admit that we're tribal, admit that, and enter into a story of another. So that when the time comes, Our weakness can be the proclamation to the world.